Welcome to Volume 7 of Jeeves in the Morning. Chapter 16 Belko was looking subdued and chastened, as if his soul had been passed through the ringer. He wore the unmistakable air of a man who has been properly told where he gets off by the girl of his dreams, and has not yet reassembled the stunned faculties. Hello, Bertie, he said in a sort of hushed saint-like voice. Pip-pip, Boko. Some night, eh? Considerable. You haven't a flask on you, have you? No. Pity. One should always carry a flask about in case of emergencies. St. Bernard dogs do it in the Alps. Fifty million St. Bernard dogs can't be wrong. I've just passed through a great emotional experience, Bertie. Did Nobby find you? He gave a little shiver. I've just been chatting with her. I had a sort of an idea you had. It shows in my appearance, does it? Yes, I suppose it would. It wasn't you who told her about those jokers, was it? Of course not. Somebody did. Uncle Percy, probably. That's true. She would have asked him how the lunch came out. Yes, I imagine that was the authoritative source from which she had her information. So, she touched on the joke goods, did she? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she touched on them. Her conversation dealt partly with them, and partly on what happened tonight. She was at no loss for words on either theme. You're absolutely sure you're having a flask, Bertie? I'm afraid so. Oh, well. Said Boko, and relapsed into silence for a while, emerging from it to ask me in a wondering sort of voice, where girls picked up these expressions. What expressions? I couldn't repeat them, with gentlemen present. I suppose they learned them at their finishing schools. She gave you the beans, did she? Oh, yeah. It was an extraordinary feeling, standing there while she put me through it. One had a day sensation of something small and shrill, whirling about, seething with fury. It was like being attacked by a Pekingese. I've never been attacked by a Pekingese. Well, ask the man who has. He'll tell you. Every moment I was expecting to get a nasty nip on the ankle. How did it all end? I got away with my life. Still, what's life? Life's all right. Not if you've lost the girl you love. Have you lost the girl you love? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I can't make up my mind. It all depends what construction you place on the words I never want to see or speak to you again in this world or the next, you miserable fathead. Did she say that? Among other things. I saw that the time had come to soothe and encourage. I wouldn't let that worry me, Boko. He seemed surprised. You wouldn't? No, she didn't mean it. Didn't mean it? Of course not. Just said it for something to say then. Making conversation, as it were. Well, I'll tell you, Bogo. I've made a pretty deep study of the sex, observing them in all their moods, and the conclusion I've come to is when they shoot their heads off in the manner described, little attention need be paid to the subject matter. You would advise ignoring it? Absolutely. Dismiss it from your mind. He was silent for a moment. When he spoke, it was on a note of hope. There's one thing, of course. She used to love me, as recently as this afternoon. Dearly, she said so. One's got to remember that. 
She still does. You really feel that, do you? Of course. In spite of calling me a miserable fathead? Certainly. You are a miserable fathead. That's true. You can't go by what a girl says when she's giving you the devil for making a chump of yourself. It's like Shakespeare. Sounds well, but doesn't mean anything. Your view, then, is that the old affection still lingers? Definitely. Dash it, man. If she could love you in spite of those grey flannel trousers of yours, it isn't likely that any mere acting of the goat on your part will have choked her off. Love is indestructible. Its holy flame burneth forever. Who told you that? Jeeves. I ought to know. He does. You can bank on Jeeves. That's right. You can, can't you? You're a great comfort, Bertie. I tried to be, Boko. You give me hope. You raise me from the depths. He perked up considerably. He wasn't actually squaring his shoulders and sticking his chin out, but the morale had plainly stiffened, and I had an idea that in another minute or two he might have become almost jaunty had there not cut through the night air at this juncture a feminine voice calling his name. Boko! He shook like an aspen. Yes, darling. Come here, I want you. Coming, darling. Oh, my God. I heard him whisper. An encore. He tottered off and I was left to ponder over the trend of affairs. I may say at once that I viewed the situation without concern. To Boko, who had actually been the ring with the young geezer while she was exploding in all directions, it had naturally seemed that the end of the world had come and Judgment Day set in with unusual severity. But to me, the cool and level-headed bystander, the whole thing had been pure routine. One shrugged the shoulders and recognised it for what it was. Viz, pure applesauce. Love silken bonds are not broken just because the female half of the sketch takes umbrage at the loony behaviour of the male partner and slips it across him in a series of impassioned speeches. However devoutly a girl may worship the man of her choice, there always comes a time when she feels an irresistible urge to haul off and let him have it in the neck. I suppose that the young lovers I've known in my time were placed end to end, difficult to manage of course, but what I mean is, just suppose they were, they would reach halfway down Piccadilly, and I couldn't think of a single dashed one who hadn't been through what Boko had been through tonight. Already I felt the second phase had probably set in, where the female lovebird weeps on the male lovebird's chest and says she's sorry she was cross. And that my surmise was correct was proved by Boko's demeanour as he rejoined me some minutes later. Even in the dim light you could see he was feeling like a million dollars. He walked as if on air and the whole soul had obviously expanded like a bath sponge placed in water. Bertie? Hello? Still there? On the spot. It's all right, Bertie. She still loves you? Yes. Good. She wept on my chest. Fine. And said she was sorry she'd been cross. I said there, there. And everything is once more gas and gaiters. Splendid. I felt terrific. I bet you did. She withdrew the words, miserable fathead. Good. She said I was the tree on which the fruit of her life hung. Fine. 
and apparently it was all a mistake when she told me she never wanted to see or speak to me again in this world or the next. She does. Frequently. Splendid! I clasped her to me and kissed her madly. I bet you did. Jeeves was present. He was much affected. Oh, Jeeves was there. Yes, he and Nobby had been discussing plans and schemes. For sweetening Uncle Percy? Yes, for of course, that still has to be done. I looked grave. Not much use, of course, in that light. It's going to be difficult. Not a bit. After you're not only addressing him as my dear Warpleston, but also calling him a silly ass? Not a bit, Bertie, not a bit. Jeeves has come across with one of his ripest suggestions. He has? What a man. Ah! I often say there's nobody like Jeeves. And well you may. Have you ever noticed how his head sticks out the back? Often. That's where his brain is, packed away behind the ears. Yes. What's his idea? Briefly this. He thinks it would make an excellent impression and enable me to recover the lost ground if I stuck up for old Warpleston. Stuck up for him? I don't get it. With a gun, do you mean? I didn't say stuck up. I said stuck up for. Oh, stuck up for? That's right, stuck up for. In other words, he advises me to take the old boy's part, protect him as it were. Protect Uncle Percy. I know it sounds bizarre, but Jeeves thinks it'll work. I still don't get it. It's perfectly simple, really. Look here. Suppose some great blustering brute of a chap barges into old Warpleton's study at ten sharp tomorrow morning and starts ballyragging him like the Dickens, calling him every name under the sun and generally making himself thoroughly offensive. I'm waiting outside the study window and at the psychological moment I'll stick my head in and in a quiet reproving voice say, Stop, Bertie. Bertie? The chap's name is Bertie, but don't interrupt. I'll lose the thread. I'll stick my head in and say, Stop, Bertie. You are strangely forgetting yourself. I cannot stand by and listen to you abusing a man I admire and respect as highly as Lord Warpleston. Lord Warpleston and I may have our differences. The fault was mine and I am heartily sorry for it. But I have never deviated from the opinion that it is an honour to know him. And when I hear you calling him a... I'm pretty quick. Already I had spotted the nature of the frightful scheme. You want me to go into Uncle Percy's lair and call him names? At ten shop. Most important that. You shall have to synchronise to the second. Nobby tells me he always spends the morning in his study. No doubt riding stinkers to the captains of his ships. And you bob up and tick me off for ticking him off. That's the idea. It can hardly fail to show me in a sympathetic light causing him to warm to me and feel I'm a pretty good chap after all. There he'll be, I mean to say, cowering in his chair while you stand over him, shaking your finger in his face. The vision conjured up by these words was so ghastly I staggered and would have fallen had I not clutched at a tree. You say Jeeves suggested this? As I told you, just like a flash. He must be tight. A stiffness crept into Boko's manner. I don't understand you, Bertie. I ranked the scheme among his very subtlest efforts. Seems to me one of those simple stratagems, all the more effective for their simplicity, which can hardly drop a stitch. 
coming into the moment where you're intimidating old Warpleston and throwing the whole weight of my sympathy and support on his side, I shall... There are moments when we Worcesters can be very firm. Adamant is perhaps the word. And one of them is when we are asked to intimidate men like Uncle Percy. I'm sorry, Poco. Sorry? Why? Include me out. What? Nothing doing. He leaned forward, the better to stare incredulously into my face. The man seemed stunned. Bertie. Yes, I know. But I repeat, nothing doing. Nothing doing? Nothing doing! A pleading note came into his voice, the same sort of note I've sometimes heard in Bingo Littles when asking a bookie to take the broad, spacious view and wait for his money till Tuesday next week. Bertie, you're fond of Nobby. Of course! Of course you are, or you would never have given her that three penny worth of acid drops. And you don't I take it dispute the fact that you and I were at school together. Of course you don't. When I thought I heard you say you wouldn't sit in, I must have misunderstood you. You didn't. I didn't? No! You refuse to do your bit. I do! You, I want to get this straight. You really decline to play your part. Your simple, easy part in this enterprise. That's right! This is Bertie Worcester speaking. It is! The Bertie Worcester I went to school with. That's right! He drew in his breath with a sort of whistle. Well, if anybody had told me this would happen, I wouldn't have believed it. I would have laughed mockingly. Bertie Worcester let me down. Not Bertie, who was not only at school with me, but is at this very moment bursting with my meat. This was a nasty one. I wasn't actually bursting with his meat, of course, because there hadn't been such a frightful lot of it at dinner, but I saw what it meant. For an instant, when he put it like that, I nearly weakened. Then I thought of Uncle Percy cowering in his chair. Cowering in his chair, my foot! And was strong again. I'm sorry, Boko. So am I, Bertie. Sorry and disappointed. Sick at heart is the expression that leaps to the lips. Well, I suppose I shall have to go and break the news to Nobby. Golly, how she'll cry. I could not repress a bang. I didn't want to make Nobby cry. You will, though, Gallons. He faded away into the darkness, sighing reproachfully, leaving me alone with the stars. And I was just examining them and wondering what had given Jeeves the idea that they were quiring to the young-eyed cherubims. I couldn't see the slightest indication of such a thing myself. When they suddenly merged, as if they had been Uncle Percy and J. Chichester Clam, and became a jagged sheet of flame. This was because a hidden hand, creeping up behind me unperceived, had given me the dickens of a slush with what I assumed to be some blunt instrument. It caught me squarely on the back hair, bringing me to earth with a sharp OUCH! Chapter 17 I sat up, rubbing the occiput, and a squeaky voice spoke in my ear hole, eyeing me solicitously, or else gloating over his handiwork. I couldn't tell which was the blighted young Edwin. Coo, he said. Is that you, Bertie? Yes, it jolly well is, I replied with a touch of not unnatural asperity. I mean, life's difficult enough without having Boy Scouts beaning one every other minute. 
and I was incensed. What's the idea? What do you mean, you young, repellent bull weevil, by soaking me with a dashed great club? It wasn't a club. It was my scout stick. Sort of like a hockey stick. Very useful. Comes in handy, does it? Rather. Did it hurt? You may take it as definitely official that it hurt like blazes. Coo! I'm sorry. I mistook you for the burglar. There's one lurking on the grounds, you know. I heard him underneath my window. I said, who's there? And he slunk off with horrid imprecations. I say, I'm not having much luck tonight. The last chap I mistook for the burglar turned out to be father. Father? Yes. How was I to know it was him? I never thought he would be wandering around the garden in the middle of the night. I saw a shadowy form crouching down as if to spring, and I crept up behind it and... You didn't biff him, did you? Oh, yeah. Rather a juicy one. I must say, my heart leapt. As Jeeves tells me his does when he beholds a rainbow in the sky, the thought of Uncle Percy stopping a hot one with the trousers seat was pretty stimulating. It had been coming to him for years. I had that sort of awed feeling one gets sometimes when one has a close-up of the workings of Providence and realises that nothing is put into this world without a purpose, not even Edwin, and that the meanest creatures have their uses. He was a bit shirty about it. Annoyed him, did it? He wanted to give me beans, but Florence wouldn't let him. She said, Father, you are not to touch him. It was a pure misunderstanding. Florence is very fond of me. I raised my eyebrows. A girl I felt of strange, even morbid tastes. So all he did was tell me to go to bed. Then why aren't you in bed? Bed? Coo, not likely. How's your head? Rotten. Does it ache? Of course it aches. Have you got a contusion? Yes, I have. This is where I could give you first aid. No, it isn't. Don't you want first aid? No, I don't. We have threshed this all out before, young Edwin. You know my views. I don't ever seem to be able to get anyone to let me give them first aid. He said wistfully. And what one needs is a lot of practice. What are you doing here, Bertie? Everyone asks me what I'm doing here, I replied with a touch of pique. Why shouldn't I be here? This place is related to me by ties of blood. If you really want to know, I came here for an after-dinner saunter with Boko Fiddleworth. I haven't seen Boko. Bit of luck for him. Darcy Cheeseright is here. I know. I found him after I saw the burglar. I know. Did you know he was engaged to Florence? Yes! I'm not sure it's not off. They were having an awful row just now. He spoke lightly, throwing the statement out as if it had been some news item of merely negligible interest and was probably surprised at the concern which I exhibited. What? Yes. An awful row? Yes. What about? I don't know. When you say an awful row, how awful a row do you mean? Well, fairly awful. High words? Pretty much. My heart had leaped up as described at the bulletin about Uncle Percy's trouser seat and was now down in the basement again. The whole trend of my foreign policy, as I have made abundantly clear, being to promote cordial relations between these two, 
the information that they had been having even fairly high words was calculated to freeze the blood. You see, what I was saying apropos of Nobby hauling up her slacks and coming the Pekingese on Boko, all that stuff, if you remember, about girls giving their loved ones the devil just for the fun of the thing and to keep the pores open, didn't apply to serious-minded females like Florence and the sort of chap Stilton was. It's all a question of what Jeeves calls the psychology of the individual. If Florence and Stilton had gone to the mat and started chewing pieces out of each other, the outlook was unsettling. How much did you hear? Not much, because that was when I saw something moving in the darkness and went and biffed it with my scout stick. It turned out to be you. This, of course, put a slightly better complexion on things. My first impression had been that he had had a ringside seat all through the conflict. If he had only heard the opening exchanges, it might be that matters had not proceeded too far. Cooler thoughts might have prevailed after his departure, causing the contestants to cheese it before the breach became irreparable. It often happens like that with girls and men of high spirit. They start off with a whoop and a holler, and then their better selves prevailing pipe down. I mentioned this to Edwin, and he seemed to think that there might be something to it. But I noticed that he appeared distraught and not really interested. After a pause of a few moments, during which I hoped for the best, and he twiddled with his scout stick, he revealed why this was so. He was worrying about a point of procedure. I say, Bertie, he said, you know that slosh I gave you? I assured him I had not forgotten it. I meant well, you know. That's a comfort. Still, of course, I did sock you, didn't I? You did. You can't get away from that. No. Then here's what I'm wondering. Have I wiped out the act of kindness I did you this afternoon? When you tied it up, we nook? No, I'm afraid that doesn't count, because it didn't work out right. I meant finding that brooch. I had to watch my step rather sedulously here. I mean to say, the brooch he had found and the brooch Jeeves had delivered to Florence was supposed to be one and the same brooch. And he must never learn from my lips that I had lost the dashed thing again after he had found it that time in the hall. Oh, that, I said. Yes, that was a great A act of kindness. Oh, no. But you think it still counts? Oh, rather. In spite of my socking you. Unquestionably. Coo. Then I'm all square up to last Thursday. You mean last Friday? Thursday. Friday. Thursday. Friday, you fat-headed young faculty reasoner, I said with some heat, for his inability to keep the score correctly was annoying me as much as that. Listen, your last Friday's act of kindness would have been tidying up of wee nook, right? But owing to the unfortunate sequel, that has to be scratched off the list. You admit that, don't you? Well, that makes the finding of the brooch your last Friday's act of kindness. Perfectly simple if you'll only use the little grey cells a bit. Yes, but you haven't got it right. I have got it right. Listen. I mean, you're talking about the first time I found the brooch. I'm talking about the second time. That counts as well. I couldn't follow him. How do you mean the second time? You didn't find it twice. Oh, yeah, I did. The first time was when you dropped it in the hall, you remember? Then I went off to clean the kitchen chimney. 
Then there was that explosion, and I came out, and you were standing on the lawn in your shirt sleeves. You had taken off your coat and chucked it away. Oh my gosh! What with the stress of this and that, I had completely forgotten the coat sequence. It all came back to me now, and a cold hand seemed to clutch at my heart. I could see where he was heading with this. I suppose the brooch must have fallen out of your pocket, because when you had gone into the house, I saw it lying there, and I thought it would be an act of kindness if I saved you trouble by taking it to Florence. I gazed at him dully. With a lackluster eye is, I believe, the expression. So you took it to Florence? Yes. Saying it was a present from me? Yes. Did she seem pleased? Frightfully. Coo. He vanished abruptly, like an eel going into mud, and I was aware of the approach of someone breathing heavily. It did not need the child's impulsive dash into the shadows to tell me that this stentorious newcomer was Florence. Chapter 18 Florence was obviously in the grip of some powerful emotion. She quivered gently as if in the early stages of palsy, and her face, as far as I could gather from the sketchy view I was able to obtain of it, was pale and set, like the white of a hard-boiled egg. Darcy, she's right, she said, getting right off the mark, without so much as a preliminary what-ho there. Is an obstinate, mulish, pig-headed, overbearing, unimaginative, tyrannical jack-in-the-office. Her words froze me to the core. I was conscious of a sense of frightful peril. Owing to young Edwin's infernal officiousness, this pancake had been in receipt only a few hours earlier of a handsome diamond brooch, ostensibly a present from Bertram W. And now, right on top of it, she had had a falling out with Stilton, so substantial that it took her six distinct adjectives to describe him. When a girl uses six derogatory adjectives in her attempt to paint the portrait of the loved one, it means something. One may indicate a merely temporary tiff. Six is big stuff. I didn't like the way things were shaping up. I didn't like it at all. Seemed to me that what she must be saying to herself was, Look here upon this picture, and on this, as it were. I mean to say, on the one hand, a suave, knightly donor of expensive brooches, and on the other, an obstinate, mulish, pig-headed, overbearing, unimaginative, tyrannical jack-in-the-office. If you were a girl, which would you prefer to link your lot with? Exactly! I felt that I must spare no effort to plead Stilton's cause to induce her to overlook whatever it was he had done to make her go about breathing like an asthmatic patient and scattering adjectives all over the place. The time had come for me to be eloquent and persuasive as never before, pouring oil in the troubled waters with a liberal hand, emptying the jug if necessary. Oh, dash it, I cried. What do you mean by oh, dash it? Just oh, dash it. Sort of protest if you follow me. You do not agree with me? I think you've misjudged him. I have not. Splendid fellow Stilton. He's nothing of the kind. Wouldn't you say he was the sort of chap who has made England what it is? No. No? I said no. 
Yes, that's right. You did. He is a mere uncouth Cossack. A Cossack I knew was one of those things that clergymen wear. And I wondered why she thought Stilton was like one. An inquiry into this would have been fraught with interest. But before I could institute it, she continued. He has been abominably rude, not only to me, but to Father. Just because Father would not allow him to arrest that man in the potting shed. A bright light shone upon me. Her words had made clear the root of the trouble. I had, if you remember, edged away from the Stilton-Florence-Uncle Percy group just after the named had put the presidential veto on the able young officer's scheme of pinching J. Chichester Clam and had accordingly not been there to hear Stilton's comments. These, it was now evident, must have been on the fruity side. Stilton, as I have indicated, is a man of strong passions. One who, when annoyed, does not mince his words. My mind went back to that time at Oxford, when I had gone in for rowing and had drawn him as a coach. If what he had said to Uncle Percy had been even remotely in the same class as his remarks on that occasion with reference to my stomach, I could see that relations must inevitably have got pretty strained, and my heart sank as I visualized the scene. He said Father was shackling the police, and that it was men like him grossly lacking in any sense of civic duty, who were the cause of the ever-growing crime wave. He said that Father was a menace to the community and would be directly responsible if half the population of Steeple Bumpley was murdered in their beds. You don't think he spoke that laughingly? No, I don't think he spoke that laughingly. With a twinkle in his eye, I mean. There was not the slightest suggestion of a twinkle in his eye. You might have missed it. It's a dark night. Please do not be utterly absurd, Bertie. I have sufficient intelligence, I hope, to be able to recognize a vile exhibition of bad temper when I see it. His tone was most offensive. And you, he said, looking at Father, as if he were some sort of insect, call yourself a justice of the peace. For! For? Like in golf? No, for. F-A-U-G-H. Oh, ah. I was beginning to be almost sorry for Uncle Percy. As far as it is possible to be sorry for a man like that, I mean there was no getting away from it, that it hadn't been a big evening for the poor old bloke. First Boker with his my dear Warpleston, then Edwin with his hockey stick, and now Stilton with his fours. One of those nights you look back at with a shudder. His behavior was a revelation to me. It laid bare a brutal, inhuman side of his character, of the existence of which I had never till then had a suspicion. There was something positively horrible in the fury he exhibited when he realized that he was not to be allowed to arrest that man. He was like some malignant wild beast deprived of its prey. It was plain that Stilton's stock was in or approaching the cellar. I did what I could to stop the slump. Still, it showed zeal, what? What? And zeal, after all, when you come right down to it, is what he draws his weekly envelope for. Don't talk to me about zeal. It was revolting. And when I said that Father was quite right, he turned on me like a tiger. Although by this, as you may well imagine, 
I was rocking on my base and becoming more and more a prey to alarm and despondency. I couldn't help admiring Stilton for his intrepid courage. Circumstances had so arranged themselves as to extract most of the stuffing from what had been a closish boyhood friendship, but I had to respect a man capable of turning on Florence like a tiger. I would hardly have thought Attila the Hun could have done it, even at the peak of his form. All the time I wished he hadn't. Oh, I was saying to myself that the voice of prudence had whispered in his ear. It was so vital to my interest that the mutual love of these two should continue unimpaired, and already much of the guilt, I feared, must have been rubbed off the gingerbread of their romance. Love is a sensitive plant, which needs cherishing and fostering. This cannot be done by turning on girls like tigers. I told him that mild enlightened thought held that imprisonment merely brutalizes the criminal. And what did he say to that? He said, oh, yes. Oh, he agreed with you. He did nothing of the kind. He spoke in a most unpleasant sneering voice. It does, does it, he said. And I said, yes, it does. He then said something about mild enlightened thought, which I cannot repeat. I wondered what that had been. Evidently something red hot, for it was clear it still wrangled like a boil on the back of the neck. Her fists I saw were clenched, and she had started to tap her foot on the ground, surely an indication that the soul is fed to the eye-teeth. Florence is one of those girls who look on modern enlightened thought as a sort of personal body, and receive with an ill grace cracks at its expense. I groaned in spirit. The way things were shaping up, I was expecting her to say next that she had broken off the engagement, and that was just what she did say. Of course, I broke off the engagement instantly. In spite of the fact that, as I say, I had practically known it was coming, I skipped like the high hills. You broke off the engagement? Yes. Oh, I say, you should have done that. Why not? Sterling chap like Stilton? He is nothing of the kind. You ought to forget those cruel words he spoke. You should make allowances. I don't understand you. Well, look at it from the poor old bastard's point of view. Stilton, you must bear in mind, entered the police force, hoping for rapid advancement. Yes, well? Well, of course. The men up at the top don't advance a young Raza rapidly unless he comes through with something so spectacular as to make them draw on their breath with an odd Lord Lover Duck. For weeks, months, Perhaps he has been chafing like a caged eagle at the law-abidingness of this place, hoping vainly for even a colourless dog or a decent drunken disorderly that he could get his teeth into. And the sudden arrival of a burglar must have seemed to him mana from heaven. Here he must have said to himself was where at last he made his presence felt. And just as he was hitching up his sleeves and preparing to take his big opportunity, Uncle Percy goes and puts him on a leash. It was enough to upset any cop. Naturally, he forgot himself and spoke with generous strength. But he never means what he says in moments of heat. You should have heard him once at Oxford, talking to me about sticking out my stomach while toiling at the oar. You would have thought he loathed my stomach and its contents. Yet only a few hours later, we were dining vis-a-vis -vis at the Clarendon. Clear soup, turbot, and saddle of mutton, I remember. And he was amiably himself. You'll find it the same now.
I bet Remorse is already gnawing him. And nobody is sorrier than he for having said nasty things about modern enlightened thought. He loves you devotedly. This is official. I happen to know. So what I would suggest is that you go to him and tell him that all is forgotten and forgiven. Only thus can you avoid making a bloomer, the memory of which will haunt you through the years. If you give Stilton the bomb's rush, you'll kick yourself practically incessantly for the rest of your life. I pause, partly for breath and partly because I felt I had said enough. I stood there, waiting for her reply, wishing I had a throat lozenge to suck. Well, I don't know what reaction I had expected on her part. Possibly the drooping of the head and the silent tear as the truth of my words filtered through her system. Possibly some verbal statement to the effect that I had spoken a mouthful. What I had definitely not expected was that she would kiss me and with a heartiness that nearly dropped me in my tracks. Oh, Bertie, you're extraordinary. She laughed. A thing I couldn't have done if handsomely paid. So quixotic. It's what I love about you. Nobody hearing you would dream that it is your dearest wish to marry me yourself. I tried to utter but could not. The tongue had got all tangled up with the uvula and the brain seemed paralyzed. I was feeling the same stunned feeling which I imagined Chichester Clam must have felt as the door of the potting shed slammed and he heard Boko starting to yodel, a nightmare sensation of being but a helpless pawn in the hands of fate. She passed an arm through mine and began to explain, like a governess instructing a backward pupil in the rudiments of simple arithmetic. Do you think I have not understood? My dear Bertie, I'm not blind. When I broke off our engagement, I naturally supposed that you would forget, or perhaps that you would be angry and resentful and think hard, bitter thoughts of me. Tonight, I realized how wrong I had been. It was that brooch you gave me that opened my eyes to your real feelings. There was no need for you to have given me a birthday present at all, unless you wanted me to know you still cared, and to give me one so absurdly expensive. Of course, I knew at once what you were trying to tell me. It all fitted in so clearly, and with all the other things you had said, about your reading Spinoza, for instance. You had lost me, as you thought, but you still went on studying good literature for my sake. And I found you in that bookshop buying my novel. I can't tell you how much it touched me. And as a result of that chance meeting, you could not keep yourself from coming to Steeple Bumpley so that you might be near me once more. And tonight you crept out to stand beneath my window in the starlight. No, let us have no more misunderstandings. I am thankful that I should have seen the meaning of your shy overtures in time and that I should have had the real Darcy Cheese Rite revealed to me before it was too late. I will be your wife, Bertie. There didn't seem to be much to say to this, except, oh, thanks. I said it and the interview terminated. She kissed me again, expressing her preference for a quiet wedding with just a few relations and intimate friends, and then she beetled off. <laughs>